Welcome to the Inclusion Think Tank podcast presented by New Jersey Coalition for Inclusive Education, NJCIE. As the name suggests, this podcast will discuss inclusive education and most importantly, why it works. On this episode, I welcome my guests, Barry Barbarash, Christine Esposito, and Saul Heckelman. They are three members of New Jersey Association for School Psychologists, and we discuss the role of school psychologists as it relates to inclusive education. Uh, I would like to welcome everyone back to another episode of the Inclusion Think Tank podcast. I'm your host, Arthur Aston, and I am here today with three guests. This is my first time hosting a show with uh, three guests. So we have uh, Saul Heckelman, Barry Barbarash, and Christine Esposito. So thank you all for joining me today on this episode. I would like for each of you to introduce yourselves and um, give a little bit of background about um, you know, who you are and what you do. Uh, just to add that, um, we'll start with Christine, go to Barry, and then to Saul. I'm Christine Esposito. I'm a school psychologist. I currently work um, in Philadelphia. I previously worked in New Jersey um, for several years um, in various districts, and um, I'm currently the president-elect for uh, the New Jersey Association of School Psychologists. I'm Barry Barbarash. I was, uh, I still am a school psychologist. I worked in uh, schools in New Jersey and New York for many years. Um, I'm an adjunct professor at Rowan University. Um, including uh, supervising practicum students. And I also teach at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine uh, in their school psychology doctoral program. And I'm a past president of the New Jersey Association of School Psychologists. Uh, Saul Heckelman, uh, I am a school psychologist and I was the director of special services uh, in a number of districts, all urban districts. And I'm retired now but I still keep my hand in and I kind of bother folks a lot just about, <laughs> uh, about how things are and how, they, how they, they should be. I'm also a past president of the association uh, and I'm also was a, I'm a past chair of the state special education advisory council. Uh, so, uh, okay, well, that's basically who I am. I would like to start the conversation um, by discussing um, a recent uh, white paper that was recently presented uh, that talked about moving on from the discrepancy model to a tiered intervention model for classification purposes. Can you give us the background on how New Jersey works now, why this is important to change, and what change would actually mean? Well, I can get started if you'd like. Yes, that would be great, Barry. <laughs> just, uh, uh, and, and please, you guys jump in. Um, just a, a little bit of history from, from IDEA. Um, IDEA um, allows for three ways of determining whether a child has a learning disability. One is an academic uh, intelligence discrepancy. A second is uh, a response to intervention. And the third is any alternative research-based procedure. That's IDA, that's federal law. Uh, New Jersey um, allows for the discrepancy. It, it, it's required to allow for the response to intervention, 
but that is it it does not provide for any third alternative research-based method. Um, the problem is that the discrepancy model that's described in IDA has really been shown through research to be invalid um, and actually does harm to children by denying them services until a discrepancy, an undefined discrepancy um, arises, which often by the time that takes place, the child might be several years since they were first seen as having difficulties, which makes it more difficult to provide them with services. So our bill, what our bill would do is eliminate this discrepancy, which, which legally we can do, many states have done that already, and add in a, the third, a third alternative research-based model, which many states have, but New Jersey doesn't. All right, I'll, I'll jump. Um, and Barry, that's a very nice uh, framework, I think, Thank for you. what is, uh, exists. And the specific problem with um, the discrepancy model, and Barry alluded uh, to the fact that it's not valid uh, scientifically, uh, is that it seems to be a very uh, scientific, quote, uh, issue using numbers. And that's attractive to everybody. So, but there are several problems with that uh, and specifically. Uh, one is that when children are very, very young, it's very difficult to get a large discrepancy because of the nature of the numbers that you get with, with, with young children. Uh, more importantly, um, discrepancy depends very much on the particular um, instruments you're using. And for example, there are many districts that require what they say is a, a standard deviation and a half. Some say 16 points, some say 21, some say 23. So it's an arbitrary number to begin with. And then it depends upon which uh, cognitive or intelligence measure you're using, which uh, achievement measure you're using. So it's a very variable kind of thing. Third is, and maybe most important, is that there are districts where uh, the, the requirement, the policy is that unless a child shows a specific number, at least of let's say 23 points, that they will not recognize that the child needs special services. It's just required. To me, that means that that's the only uh, uh, valid, not valid, that's the only uh, criterion they're using. Because unless the child gets that in that district, they won't allow it. So to us, that's number one. It's not only unethical, but it seems to be illegal uh, from our, uh, in, in line with federal requirements. The, what compounds this is in New Jersey, as we all know, is the home of home rule which means that every local board of education makes its own policy in this regard. So the, what then happens is in some districts, there is discrepancy and in in, in too many, in some there's not. So there's a whole jumble of what's required and what's not required. So the long and short of it is, that discrepancy is just, it's a very misleading number and it serves no value that we can think of. The only quote value is that 
the child in the general education program in the regular class is not doing as well as the teacher feels he or she could do. Okay, that's an issue. But if that was all it was, this discrepancy, then you wouldn't need to do any, any more testing or any more observation because the child has this discrepancy. So all the way around, it's just, it's the wrong thing to do. I'm sure there's some psychologists who use that in my district, but the, most of us are actually trained on the third method and we try to use that as much as we can because we don't agree with discrepancy. Most of us came from other districts where like, you know, that you guys were saying, you know, it's a hard 23 points. And if they don't make that, you know, you don't get services. Um, and just one of, the, one of the districts I worked in was that. And uh, we had several kids who were up for a reevaluation you know, who previously were getting services, all of a sudden, you know, maybe the, the discrepancy was 22 points. Now they don't get services anymore. I mean, it's, it's really unethical and it's not fair to these students. And, and quite honestly, it's, uh, it's unnecessary mm -hmm. because the law doesn't require children to be tested on a reevaluation. It's true. And it's some districts actually do make you test every three That's years. That's right. It's, so you, again, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, I think part of it is, which I hate to say it, but part of it is the way to kind of keep their numbers low in special ed because they know that might happen. So you're left with a situation where a child, again, these numbers are all arbitrary. There is no number. So districts create a number. So a child in first grade may have a 21-point discrepancy, and they're eligible for special education. Three years later, they're tested. Well, now they have an 18-point discrepancy. Even though they still need the services, the services are taken from them. Exactly. And then what ends up happening, too, is then they're referred again, probably the next year. Exactly. So they're put back in the gen ed curriculum, you know, and now they're referred and we have to read mm -hmm. again. So it's, and, you know, then they're missing out on that, the specialized instruction that they were receiving this few, you know, for all those years and that it's just, it really does create quite a, a mess and it's a shame for the students at the end of the day. It's harmful to them. Well, mm -hmm. that, that, and that's really with the impetus for the, our bill that was in the Senate and the assembly to do away with discrepancy and to add in the option of a third alternative research-based method, which IDA does allow for. And I think one more thing, if you don't mind me just jumping no, in. No, please. I think like, a lot of times people look at that hard number because it holds up legally in court, like a lot of attorneys. And that's one thing that we do see in my district being a larger district. Um, you know, it's like, well, you know, what's the number? And they're always looking at the numbers for everything. And, you know, students are not numbers. Like, you know, every child is an individual, you know, child, they have unique learning experiences. And if you're going to defend anything like legally, as long as you do a comprehensive assessment and you could defend your reasoning as to why the student needs these particular services, it's going to hold up in court. I mean, that's always mm. been my experience. So agreed. agreed. Yeah, and I think what Christine was saying kind of leads into something which to us is even more important, which is the whole uh, value or lack thereof of the, of the um, testing for special education and the emphasis on that. There are children who need a very unique kind of uh, and small group kind of setting uh, for their particular needs. But the question is, how do you know who these children are? And what do you do for them so that 
they might not have to be in separate settings, but they could be uh, taught in the regular program. And so uh, the, another aspect that we want to emphasize as school psychologists, um, and also for learning consultants for that matter, is that the, um, the major effort should be on how to work with these children, whether they have quotes of disability or special needs or not in the regular setting, to the extent that it's uh, productive for them, for the children. And so there are various labels uh, for the, those practices. One is the uh, multi-tiered system of support or New Jersey, the New Jersey tiered system of support. I think Which they've done that, away with that, that, that term, by the way. What I'm seeing is that yes. MTSS now. Right. Okay, MTSS. good. I'm glad to hear that. Very yeah. good. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what that simply means is just an ordinary language is that you do whatever you can within the respect to the curriculum and the instructional techniques that a, a teacher has uh, to work with the child. And as Christine was saying before, it's not the numbers, it's the individual children. So every child has his or her own learning style, has his or her thing that they do well. And that's what you just focus on. And uh, in fact, what we would like to do is to get away from the emphasis on what the child can't do, but what is it that the child can do? And how can we, uh, we the teacher, uh, the other staff in the school, how can we uh, capitalize on the strengths of the child? We all have disabilities, some of us more than others, some of my best friends. <laughs> uh, but what we all do is we try to work around that and we try to capitalize on the strengths we have. Some of us have more strengths than other folks have. Uh, and so that should be the focus for everybody. If it turns out then, that all of the efforts that are made and all of these special techniques that are used in general ed are really just not sufficient for that child, then you begin to think of special education. But the goal would be to keep the child functioning at his or her best ability within the general education uh, program. And then the label, if you need to put a label on in order to get something special, well, okay. But that's not really what we're aiming at to start with. Such great answers from all of you to uh, give a, a great um, understanding of, you know, what things are like and, and where you're aiming uh, to take them. So thank you all for those uh, great explanations. Uh, for our next question, um, it's, it's something that has been uh, present in all of our lives with the uh, pandemic going on. And I think we had all hoped for and anticipated uh, for a COVID-free school year for 2021, 2022, uh, and that everyone would be in some sort of mental recovery process by now from the pandemic. Um, but can you explain to us what is actually happening uh, in the schools and, and how are school psychologists working to deal with this trauma with the uh, students? Well, um, I know in the schools uh, and there's literature on it every day about 
Um, and it's, and beyond, it's not just kids, it's teachers as well. And the issue of mental health is probably the predominant issue in education today as it, as it uh, applies to the pandemic. Um, we have kids coming back to school. Um, there was some, uh, something uh, on the news a couple of weeks ago that there are 140,000 kids have come back to school having uh, either a parent or a primary caretaker dying. And to compound things, of that number, 60% are kids from minority populations. So that just makes it that much more. And kids from minority populations, low SES, always bear the brunt of this. But I know in the schools, they're seeing a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, and that involves the teachers as well as, um, as the students. And so that's a lot of what's going on now. Christina, I don't know if you see any of that with the Absolutely. kids. Who, yeah. I mean, students and teachers. I mean, I think it's mental health for everyone. Um, it's actually kind of funny. I was just talking to one of my colleagues the other day because we thought last year was very challenging, you know, and but this year I feel it is actually worse. Um, you know, I think everyone's just this year we've had difficulties with like, you know, not just, you know, mental health, but just like transportation, um, you know, sometimes, and then people are getting COVID still. So then they're going out and then some people are virtual. Some schools are not virtual. Like parents aren't sure what to do until the night before, because we might find out that a school is going virtual the next day. I mean, it's just kind of still all over the place. Um, at the moment, currently we have half of our district is virtual, half is not. Um, we have to find out the night before whether or not they're going to be. And a lot of staff members are out because they're getting COVID. And, you know, then we can't find anybody to fill that position because we can't get substitute teachers to come in. So we have some of us as psychologists are going in to try to help with the classes. You know, we have people from like administration coming in. It's just, it's, you know, and then again, I think the worst part of it is the mental health, you know, across the board for everybody. Um, you know, we're just seeing so many kids, even like first graders are just anxious. You know, they feel like, you know, they can't keep up, you know, they miss out on some of that instruction, you know, from kindergarten, the other part of it is social skills, it's just kind of getting everybody acclimated back to being in the classroom. I mean, that was difficult too. So it's definitely been a challenging year. <laughs> and it's, it's not, it's not necessarily getting a whole lot better at this point. Right. I mean, again, and it start. It felt like almost like it was starting. You start, start, saw a little glimmer of hope, right? Mm -hmm. And then, like, then we had, you know, this variant come through. And mm -hmm. like, I think since you know the middle of December, like that's it's just been going like that. You know, where people are closing. You know, um, it, it's just or not people. Students are um, the schools are closing. So like students, mm -hmm. um, the staff members have to come in, but then some of the staff members are out. You know, it's just it's. It's been a lot, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's that's a, a great way to, to frame the issue. So one question that comes up is, so what can we do about that? And uh, we have to recognize number one that there are limits. That uh, what we try to do uh, is going to take a lot of of effort and a lot of patience. But I think. In a sense, it's the kind of thing that we should ordinarily be doing, except there's much more pressure at this point. Uh, for example, um, ordinarily, school, a good part of the school psychologist's time and social workers should be working with staff and with children and with the parents for that matter, uh, in terms of, again, focusing on 
how they feel about themselves, how they feel about the, the tasks that, are, uh, that they're faced with, about the stresses, and trying to capitalize again from a mental health point of view on what their strengths are, uh, on what, how they can feel good about themselves, how they can feel comfortable in tackling the, uh, the academic issues and the relationships with other kids. Uh, this is, it's true all the time. It's, it's uh, emphasized right now because of the, the concerns that uh, Christina and Barry had raised. Um, and you know, uh, you can throw all kinds of extra math and language arts and science classes at the kids in order to uh, try to boost them up for the state testing that comes along. But if they're not put together, so to speak, if they're not functioning well as individual people, uh, then all that extra academic stuff is not gonna do very much for them. What they need is to feel more comfortable with themselves, to feel that they can tackle issues that come up. Uh, and very often, uh, some people can do that on their own, but all too often people need that extra counseling, if you will, or that extra a chance to look at themselves and understand what their capabilities really are. And then they can go ahead and use their own abilities uh, to the maximum. Well, I, I think one of the issues is, um, it, it, are the schools, as a, is the school as a system set up to address things like this? And my sense is that everybody's been caught by surprise. And one of the things that um, we're looking to do in conjunction with some other associations is work together to see how can we address uh, the mental health issues for the kids and the families. Because I don't know, again, I don't know that the schools are necessarily um, systemically set up to address, say, something like a pandemic and how it impacts kids' mental health. And frankly, the teacher's mental health also. Um, I, I know someone who is a speech therapist and she goes in a half a day, but she doesn't know from day to day which kids she's gonna see on in person, which kids are gonna be online, when she's gonna see them. And it's extremely stressful for her. Mm -hmm. And I know other teachers are experiencing the same thing, but the schools, I don't know, systemically are set up to address those kinds of issues. And I think, um, that's what needs to happen is taking like a big picture look also at it and saying, what can the schools do systemically to address the needs of the kids and the needs of the teachers? Sometimes we forget about the teachers, but they're experiencing the same thing. Christine, if you've seen that as well. That Absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, again, back to the mental health piece. I mean, you're not going to a student is not going to be available to learn if they're not there. Fully. I think that's what Saul was saying, right? Like you have to be mentally, like mentally feeling good and available to learn and actually able to retain those concepts and everything that they're learning. So mental health across the board, I think is key right now. And that's something that we need to be focusing more on. Um, but I think part of the problem too, though, is because I think there are a lot of I don't my personal experience seems to be like the districts are getting a lot of pressure to recover, you know, from what was lost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> academically, um, you know, and it, but again, we can't push that so much if there's still so much trauma and everything from the pandemic. So we really have to focus still on that mental health, making sure everybody's feeling safe and is available to learn before we can actually start focusing on 
that, you know, and kids are pretty resilient, I think, you know, um, as far as gaining those skills back, once we start, you know, being able to get to that point where we could teach mm -hmm. them, that would be great. But if you're going to just start kind of forcing that and pushing that immediately, you're, they're going to shut down a little bit because we still need to focus on that mental health piece. Well, it just makes the problem worse. Exactly. It's not going to deal with the pressure. So you're, right. you're really correct. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a great um, segue into our uh, last question, uh, which is if we were to reimagine the role of the school psychologist for inclusive schools, what would that look like? Um, and what would be different from the way that it is now? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if, if we're going to if we're going to reimagine, and I like to do things like that, and I've had conversations with Sal about, you know, if you had a million dollars, what would you do? Um, I, I think for, for for school psychologists, the idea that the primary role of the school psychologist is to be a gatekeeper of spe for special education needs to go. I know I wasn't trained to do that. Um, where we're trained to do is provide an array of services to all children. And if I'm going to re, including kids with disorders, disabilities, whatever word, whatever the word of the day is, um, but to provide for the needs of all children, because to me, learning is on a continuum. It's not like, you know, you have this score, so you have this disability and you have that score, so you don't. That's, that's not true at all. It's on a continuum. And so we should be providing services that reflect that continuum. That's where the multi-tiered system of support makes so much, to me, makes so much sense. But I think if I'm gonna reimagine my role, my role would have been to be the school psychologist for all the children, which may involve, you know, reshaping what, how many school psychologists there are, um, reshaping how services are provided. But to me, that's what needs to happen. And that's really not, Christine, you can speak to this maybe better than I can at this point. But in my time, my primary role was to be the, you know, to classify kids, to do reevaluations. That should not be, that should not, that, that needs to be some of it, but it shouldn't be, it shouldn't predominate. It should be a part of a much larger role. Uh, yeah, to pick up on that in a variety of ways, again, I think Barry uh, uh, phrased that very well. Um, I think what we have to do, and all of us, uh, we have to rethink how we approach the whole idea of, quote, education or formal education uh, in, in the schools. And we have to look at the kids not as what category they're in, or maybe in whether it's special ed or not, but as individual functioning uh, people, as individuals with their own styles. And we have to think of the school as, as everything in, in society, as a dynamic. It's not just there's this kid who has this particular problem. So it's the medical model, which is this kid is carrying a disease around with him. So let's find out what the cause of that disease is, and then let's either cure it, which is impossible uh, in many practical ways, or let's put him or her aside in some special setting. And so they won't be contaminating the other kids in the regular classes. Uh, and they'll let the teacher work with the other kids 
oh, it don't take as much time. That's totally wrong. And we're not always aware of the fact that we're really doing that. What we need to do is to look at the dynamics of the school. The school is a social setting. Everybody has interactions with, every, with many other people. Everybody has their own uh, needs and thoughts that they bring to things. So social relationships are extremely important. A child may do better in one, with one teacher than another teacher. Not that the teacher is better or, or not as good, but it's simply that teacher just picks up on, on the chemistry, so to speak, uh, with that particular child. Um, the children, uh, and, and there's an interaction. So if a school psychologist is in a school and gets the sense of, well, these people work well together. This particular teacher works better with that teacher. These particular children function better in this kind of a setting. The psychologist is in a position to capitalize on that and to make suggestions or to work with the teachers in terms of capitalizing on their strengths and their particular uh, ways of, of instruction. We all have our own ways as teachers to do instruction, as school psychologists, as interviewers, to pick up on particular uh, aspects of what we're doing. And we're not always aware of that. So one way is to become more aware of ourselves. By the way, social emotional learning, which we're all aware of these days, I think, is very much the idea of being aware of your own emotions and how they're functioning and what you're doing to capitalize on them in a productive way and not to be afraid of the emotions, but to recognize that we're all emotional in, in many ways. So that's a long-winded way of saying that the school psychologists, if they have the time and the opportunity to work with everyone, staff, as Barry says, as well as uh, children. Uh, that, that's what we should be doing. And by the way, just to throw this in, not again, not every school psychologist is great at everything. You know, we like to think we're pretty good, but it depends on your training. Uh, and it depends upon your own uh, interest and your own motivations. So some psychologists will be terrific at counseling uh, at group dynamics and so on. Some will be excellent at, um, uh, at, at investigating particular learning styles of kids and what the dynamics are of their particular uh, ways of learning. So it's a variety of things, but in general, that's where we should be. Christine, did you have anything to add to that? I mean, I think they covered a lot of it. <laughs> um, I mean, I was just gonna say, I think, and for me, my role kind of changed a little bit as a school psychologist, depending on the district I worked in as well. Um, like in a larger system, it was almost kind of like stay in your lane. And this is like what you do, kind of what Barry was saying, that you're the gatekeeper um, for special education. Um, sometimes in smaller districts, you could get more involved with like um, doing some counseling. I used to do um, like a social skills uh, group with um, preschoolers and kindergartners. Um, so if I could reimagine what my role would be, it would be getting more involved, like they were saying, um, you know, with staff, with um, MTSS, with counseling. I, I, love doing that um and i think right now mental health is and social emotional learning is such a big um push and i think that's kind of where we should be working more um and not just you know 
doing evaluations and determining whether or not a student needs special education. Thank you all for this conversation. This was a great uh, conversation with you all. I appreciate you taking out the time from your busy schedules to uh, participate in this conversation today. Thank you all again for your time today and uh, enjoy your day and the weekend. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Oh, thanks. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Inclusion Think Tank podcast. This podcast is brought to you by New Jersey Coalition for Inclusive Education. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube or Spotify and to follow us on social media at NJCIE. Until next time.